We are going to continue traveling through our series on the book of Daniel. We're going to keep investigating how we can remain faithful to God in a faithless generation. Today we're going to be covering Daniel chapter 3 verses 8 through 30. So if you like a Bible in your hand, you may want, you, you'll, you'll want to turn to that passage, Daniel 3 verses 8 through 30. And we are going to discover three more things that will enable us to be fully devoted to Jesus in our hurting world uh, for his glory and for the healing of the people that we encounter. So I'm going to pray and I'll read our passage as usual and then we'll look at those three things. Let me pray. Father, I, I never want to take it for granted that we get to be here as a body, as your family, uh, singing your praises, thinking about how good you are, how great you are, how much you love us, thinking about all you've done for us, are doing for us, and will do for us. May we just not take it for granted that we have you, that we have your spirit dwelling inside of us, that we have your promise that you will never leave nor forsake us, and that we have this amazing promise of your return and future glory and your kingdom engulfing the kingdoms of the world, you making all things new, unhindered fellowship with you, we will finally at last, as Billy Graham is right now, seeing you face to face. Lord, we cannot wait. In the meantime, there's work to be done. In the meantime, there are people that are hurting so deeply, that have no hope, and they need you. They need you because in you is hope, there's joy, there's peace, there's a future, there's security, there's meaning and there's significance. And Lord, I pray that as we look at our passage this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, it would challenge us, it would convict us, it would encourage us so that we are not lethargic. I don't want this church to be just a... A church full of nominal Christians. Lord, may we be passionately pursuing you and passionately partnering with you uh, to break the chains that are prevalent in our world. Thank you for your word. What a light it is uh, to us. What a lamp it is unto our feet. In it is found all of your, you know, just the depth of your wisdom and your mercy and your grace. Speak to us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Daniel 3, 8 through 30. As always, I encourage you to tune in as much as you possibly can. These are words of life. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Don't you love that? Like, that just gets my blood going. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. In the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps and the administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's words and yielded their bodies that they should never serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces." And their houses should be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, 
in the province of Babylon. Okay, so this passage contains three things that I think we need in order to remain faithful in a faithless generation. Faithful to God, that is. You must choose daily who you will serve. You got to count the cost. And you got to trust that God will be with you in the battle. So you got to choose daily who you're going to serve. Count the cost. Trust that God will be with you in the battle. So let's look at the first one. Choose daily who you will serve. So as we've gone through this book of Daniel, we've been talking about a lot about the foundations that we build our life on. And, and whatever our life's foundation is made up of, it, that's really our Savior. Because it's really what we're looking to, to rescue us from a life of insecurity, to rescue us from a life of boredom, to rescue us from a life of unhappiness and insignificance. We've been talking also about that our foundation that we build our life on also controls us. It dictates how we spend our time. It dictates how we spend our money. It dictates how we interact with people and who we interact with. We've also discovered that King Nebuchadnezzar's foundation, the, the, the rock that he was building his life on, really wasn't a rock. It was, it was loose sand, and it was the foundation of power, success, wealth, glory for himself. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was looking to, to be his savior. In the way that the Bible most often speaks about these foundations, these faulty foundations that we try and build our lives on is in terms of idolatry. That's how the Bible speaks about it the most. In idolatry, we've talked about this, but it's always good for us to be reminded that idolatry is anything that takes God's place in our life. It's anything that we make the foundation of our life that isn't God. It's looking for salvation in something or someone other than the one true God. It's anything that we're loving or trusting or obeying more than we are the God of the Bible. And because we are so prone to fall into idolatry as people, the Bible talks about it repeatedly. In fact, some would say that it's the number one issue that the Bible addresses is idolatry. More than 50 of the laws in the first five books of the Bible are aimed at this issue. That's how serious of an issue idolatry is. Why all this focus on idolatry in the Bible? Why could some say it's the main issue that the entire Bible addresses? Because God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Exodus 24 and 5 says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Now, when you hear that, your mind might go to, wait a minute. God's a jealous God? The Bible speaks out against 
jealousy as a sin. So which one is it? (laughs) You know, how can God be good but also be jealous? He's either one or the other. He can't be both. So how does this work, right? And I think the reason we struggle with this, that God is a jealous God, is because we're thinking of the sinful form of jealousy. And the sinful form of jealousy says, I want what you have, and I hate that you, I hate you because you have it. That's the sinful form of jealousy. I want what you have, and you know what? I hate you because you have it and I don't. That form, that form of jealousy, the sinful kind, is full of greed, it's full of envy, it's, it's full of spite. And it's this kind of jealousy that does cause destruction on all levels. It just ruins relationships and people, right? But there is a form of jealousy that is a godly jealousy. Actually, the Apostle Paul had it for the, the, the Christians living in Corinth. He writes in 2 Corinthians eleven two, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And the reason we call it godly jealousy because it's the kind of jealousy that God has. In his classic book, J.I. Packer, his classic book, Knowing God, he writes this about God's jealousy and how it's a righteous jealousy. God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. You know what's precious to God? You know what's supremely precious to him? You. God is crazy about you. He is madly in love with you. And therefore, he wants a relationship with us and all of us. You know, every part of us. Not, not just not just a quarter of us or a tenth of us or half of us or 90% of us. He wants a relationship with Everything we've got, our, our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, our whole strength. And he wants this relationship with us that is best described in human terms as a marriage. Where he's fully committed to us and we are fully committed to him. And he wants to experience the joy of being in that kind of relationship with us. He wants to experience the joy of knowing us knowing all of us and having all of us. He wants all of our affection, all of our devotion as we sing, right? And think about it. If God didn't want all of us, if he didn't want every part of our heart, every part of our mind, every part of our soul, every part of our strength, if he was content with just like this semi-personal relationship with us, if he was content for for us to be one of his many, I don't know, if he was content to to just have this semi-personal relationship with us that wasn't this exclusive thing, could you really say he loved us? I mean, think about it. If I was content with a little bit of Mary's heart, If I was content with a little bit of her mind, just a little bit of understanding and knowing the movements of her soul, if I was content with Mary um, being with a lot of other men and having many other lovers, 
Would you say that I was really committed to her? Would you say that I really love her? Would you say that she's really precious to me? No, my indifference would communicate that I could take her or leave her. It's no big deal. If I have her, great. If I don't, that's okay too. You know, God is jealous for us because he wants all of us. You know why else God is jealous for us? Why he wants us to love him more than we love anything else? It's because he knows that when we love God with everything that we've got, we're going to be happy. That's another reason why God is jealous for us. He not only wants to experience an intimate relationship with all of us, he wants us to be happy. And he knows that happiness only comes through that kind of exclusive relationship with him. He knows that all other lovers are going to lead us to this place of enslavement. All other lovers are going to lead us to a place of despair and sorrow and anxiety and fear. You know, if I didn't care about Mary's happiness, could you say that I loved her? No, you wouldn't say I love her. A person who loves another person wants the best for the other person. I want Mary to be happy because I love her. I love Mary, and so I want her to be happy. You see, God's jealousy is the result of him wanting to experience this intimate relationship with you, and because he wants you to be happy. And that is why he hates when you go after other gods, after other lovers. He hates it. It just rips his heart because he knows that he's not going to be able to experience the intimacy by which he wants to experience with you. And he knows that you're not going to be happy. He just sees you leaving him and he sees you hurting yourself. And just like somebody we love, if they leave us and we see them going down a path of destruction, it tears us up to even more so for God. And that's why the Bible talks so much about idolatry. And the Bible also talks about it because the Bible knows that we are so prone, as I said before, to fall into it. Our, our sinful nature, our flesh, just, I mean, it's just like its knee-jerk reaction is to pursue things that ultimately cannot satisfy us. And so we got our sin nature that makes it easy for us to, to wander off. It also, you know, our culture just promotes committing idolatry against God, doesn't it? I mean, look at the advertisements that we watch. If you drive this vehicle, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be somebody. If you own this gadget, if you wear these clothes, if you drink this drink, what it's doing is it's, it is promoting saviors, false saviors to you. It's communicating a message of salvation, that these products are in some way going to save you from your miserable life, right? And if you don't get them, then you're going to be missing out and still be miserable. And you know what else? We have an enemy in this world, and Satan 
that wants to do whatever he can to entice us to love other things more than we love God. And if he can't get us to fully go and worship something else, he'll still consider it a victory if he gets us to worship God and whatever you want it to be. Because if, and this is, this is syncretism. Syncretism is when we try and worship God in something else. God in career, God in family, God in marriage, God in, you know, success, God in all the things that we've been talking about, wealth. If Satan can get us to worship God and another thing, our loyalty and commitment will be divided. And so if Satan can't get us to totally reject God, he'll he'll still consider it a victory if he can get us to have just this divided loyalty where we're trying to worship God and other things. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, God's at War, he writes this. It's not on the screen, so you just have to really listen. When we hear God say, you will have no other gods before me, We think of it as a hierarchy. God is always in first place, but there are no places. God isn't interested in competing against others or being first among many. God will not be a part of a hierarchy. He wasn't saying before me as in ahead of me. A better understanding of the Hebrew word translated before me is in my presence. God declines to sit atop an organizational flowchart. He is the organization. He is not interested in being president of the board. He is the board. And life doesn't work until everyone else sitting around the table in the boardroom of your heart is fired. He is God, and there are no other applicants for that position. There are no partial gods, no honorary gods, no interim gods, no assistance to the regional gods. For you office fans out there. God is saying this is not because he is insecure, but because it's the way of truth in this universe, which is his creation. Only one God owns and operates it. Only one God owns and operates it. Only one God designed it. And only one God knows how it works. He is the only God who can help us, direct us, satisfy us, and save us. So back to Daniel. In the passage, we have the king Nebuchadnezzar. And he's fine with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshiping the God of the Bible. He's fine with that. So long as he worship, so long as those three men worship his God and his gods as well. Because in that time, they were fine with the pantheon of gods. They worshiped many gods. So long as the, you know, the, the God of the Bible for Shadrach and Meshach came under. Nebuchadnezzar's gods, he was cool with them worshiping the God of the Bible. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? Our society is fine with us worshiping the God of the Bible. It really is. So long as we worship the God of relativism, so long as we worship the God of individualism, so long as we worship the God of materialism, so long as we keep our faith private and secondary, Right? By not allowing it to influence our, influencing our teaching or our business practices or our decision making or our counseling or our nursing or our politics or our sexuality. And that's why we have to choose. When Joshua, he was leading the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel is just like us, they struggle with idolatry so much. And so, 
he told them it was okay that they worship other gods as long as they worship the one true God, Yahweh, right? That's what he told them. No way. Joshua 24, 14, and 15 says this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew they had to choose who they were going to serve. They had to put a stake in the ground. They couldn't have one foot in with God and the other foot out trying to stand on some other faulty foundation. And we have to be all in like Daniel and his friends. We've got to choose who you're going to serve. Bob Dylan said you've got to serve somebody. Who are you going to serve? We are, uh, we are hardwired for worship. We're going to worship something. Who are you going to worship? Is it going to be God or money? Is it going to be God or that relationship? Or is it going to be God or that house? Is it going to be God or that career? Or God in pleasure? Or God in comfort? Or God or hobbies? We have to put the stake in the ground. And you know what else we have to do? We have to daily remind ourselves of the decision we've made because each day, each moment, we are presented with forks in the road, aren't we? And with each moment, we can decide who we're going to serve. So it's got to be not just a once and done thing. It's got to be something that we do daily and sometimes moment by moment. How do you know if God is the apple of your eye? How do you know if you're all in with God and there are no other idols on the throne of your heart? How do you know? You know how you know? Are you willing to say to God, your wish is my command? I will do anything for you. Are you willing to say that to him? I will do anything for you. You know how else God is on the throne of your heart? Everything's on the table. Everything's on the table, right? Lord, do you want me to keep my job or do you want me to leave it? You want me to find some other job? It's on the table. Do you want me to get rid of my money? Get rid of my retirement. It's on the table. Do you want me to move out of this house? The house is on the table. Do you want me to get rid of my stuff? Or do you want me to keep it? But the stuff's on the table. Your time, it's on the table. Lord, how do you want me to spend my time? It's on the table. You know that God is on the throne of your heart when you have not, no non-negotiables. Nothing you're back. Shadrach and Meshach had it all on the table. They were all in, no holding back. There was no Jesus, I'll follow you so long as you don't take. Right? No syncretism. Daniel 1 talks about 
how these men purposed in their heart to serve God? Have you purposed in your heart that you will not tolerate any other things that you are worshiping? Do you got it all on the table? You know, their response to Nebuchadnezzar proved it, right? That response that I said gave me that, man, just get your blood flowing through your veins. <laughs> we have no need to answer you in this matter, O King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 17, if that is the case in terms of God, you know, if them being destroyed in the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, and I love this, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are you really all in with God? Are you really jealous for a God who is jealous for you? Are you in hot pursuit of a God who is in hot pursuit of you? Are you offering all of yourself to this God that has offered all of himself to you? Or is your Christian life and your devotion to God pathetic? You got to be real. Got to be real with yourself. Are you too easily satisfied when it comes to your relationship with God? Are the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things choking God's word out of you and making you unfruitful for him. Got to be brutally, brutally honest with ourselves. There's too much at stake. God's glory, your happiness, and the world's healing. Like all of you, I am deeply saddened by what took place this last week. It just breaks your heart, doesn't it? And I just really feel God leading me to be a part of the solution. And I'm, I don't know what that is yet. I met with some pastors this past Wednesday, and we just prayed. to Figure out, how can we be a part of the solution? And one thing that the Lord keeps telling me, I feel like, in my times with him is, you know what, Shane? One way you're going to be a part of the solution is you've got to have a healthy, thriving church full of healthy, thriving people that are all in with Jesus, that are going into the world and being those grace dispensers that we talked about in adult Sunday school. We, hey, we've got to be awesome as a church. We've got to be awesome. You've got to be an awesome Christian. You know why? Because you are the body of Christ. And you are Christ's chosen vehicle to deal with the mess that's outside of these walls. All right, count the costs. So if you made the choice to be all in, everything's on the table. You ain't holding nothing back like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Be warned. There were a ton of people at that dedication of King Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't there? Tons of people. All of the leading officials throughout his vast empire were assembled to dedicate this, this image, this gold image that Nebuchadnezzar made. Daniel must not have been there because you know Daniel was not going to bow down. 
to King Nebuchadnezzar. So he must have been back at the palace managing things. That's my best guess. But for his three friends, it was a difficult and lonely thing, wasn't it? Out of all the people that were assembled throughout his empire, there were three people that stood up. You know, following God, being all in for him, is often a difficult and lonely pursuit. We may not be thrown into a fiery furnace like the three, three friends. But there are other things that can happen to us for our allegiance to Christ. At work, you stand up for God and his ways and his values by not participating in the gossip at lunch, and then you find yourself kicked out of the lunch group, right? The lunch bunch. In high school, if you refuse to bow down to the gods of fleeting pleasure, and so you're not sleeping around or getting high and lying to your parents, that can lead you to be kicked out of the in-group, right? If your boss is fudging numbers and he's telling white lies to people and treating people poorly and you stand up for God's kingdom's values in that place, you may find yourself no longer getting the same projects that you once received. You may find that the writing's on the wall, that you're not going to have a job too much longer. I know I've shared with you before, I have a pastor friend in Canton who, from what I understand, gave, they, him and his wife gave up their careers um, they sold all of their possessions to start a church in Canton. The result, his family still isn't talking to him. And it's been several years now. If you're not experiencing opposition for your faith, could it be it's because you're hiding in the crowd where you're? That you're not standing up against the gods of this culture. You're not making a difference in the world for Christ. That the way you live is just no threat to the enemy. It just isn't. You're not on the front lines. You're not in the battle. You're bound down with the rest of the crowd. And so there's no real spiritual impact that you're making in the world. Are you sick of living in fear? Weak to the pressures around you? Could it be... You're too focused on saving your life. And so as Jesus taught, you're losing it. You're depressed. You're bored. You're discontent. Life is dull. You lack purpose. Will you trust Jesus when he says, whoever loses his life for me will find it? Sure, count the cost of following Jesus, but you also have to count the cost of not following Jesus. I was listening uh, to a sermon by Billy Graham this past week, throwback to 1972, and it was the title, you know, Count the Cost of Not Following Jesus. That was his main, that's what he talked about. Isaiah was watching it with me. He's like, I really like this guy's accent. I'm like, never thought of Billy Graham of having an accent, but he, he's like, I really like this guy. I'm like, you know who that is? It was really cool. Count the cost of following Jesus. you got to count the cost of not following him. At times, it's going to be lonely and it's going to be difficult because you are going to experience the wrath of the gods, right? 
We may lose family, we may lose friends, we may lose popularity, we may lose comfort, we may lose possessions, we may lose our retirement, but also count the cost of not following Jesus wholeheartedly and without reserve. Your life will get sucked out of you. There's no joy in that. You're going to forfeit the joy of making real lasting impact in the world. You're going to forfeit the joy of the blessing of experiencing God's resurrection power being channeled in and through you. There's no greater high than that to impact in somebody who's hurting. There's no greater high, no greater joy. Paul, after describing all the success that he had in life, all the power that he had, all the influence he had, all the learning that he had, he said this to the Christians in Philippi, Philippians 3, 7, and 8, and 10. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Do you understand that the Greek word behind that is animal poop? That's what Paul counted All these things that we go after, all these false idols that we prostitute ourselves out to, rubbish, animal poop. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Is that your heart? Number three, so we got to choose who we're going to serve, and it's got to be a daily thing. we got to count the cost both ways, and then we got to trust that God will be present with you in the battle. If you choose to stand for him on the, the road of suffering for the sake of his glory and for the healing of the people around you, you got to trust that God's going to be present with you in that battle. In our scripture today, notice that God... God didn't save the men from the fire. He saved the men in the fire, right? By his presence with them in the fire. When the three men were thrown into the furnace, there's this mysterious fourth person in the fire with them. I think you can make some good arguments that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Even King Nebuchadnezzar said, what did he say? Where's that at? It looked like a son of God. And this is the wicked, evil King Nebuchadnezzar. It may be an angel of the Lord. We don't know for sure. But either way, it's God's presence, right? Either way, it's God's presence with these men. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned nor shall the flame scorch you. You see, God does not promise to remove all our life's difficulties. He promises to be with us in the difficulty, ensuring that the trial will not overwhelm us completely. That is the promise. You know, um, I think we often think, like when I read something like the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think, man, could I ever be that strong in my faith to be one of the three that stood up to the most powerful man in the entire world, knowing that most likely that was a death sentence? Would I be brave enough to stand for Christ in that way? 
when I have the courage, like that football coach in Parkland during the mass shooting, who took bullets for himself, gave of his life so that others might live, would I have that in me? Or would I cave in? Ian Dugid, he's a, he's a commentator, he's a scholar, and he writes this in regards to the courage of Daniel and his three friends, and I think it is so good. You know, child and a young person, I sometimes used to wonder and worry about what it would be like to be in their position. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What would I do if I were faced with a similar choice between denying Christ and a painful death? I doubted whether I'd be so bold in the service of the Lord as these young, young men were. I feared rather that I would cave under the pressure. As I have grown older, however, I've come to realize two things. And this part of the quote is up. First, God has not promised to give us the grace to face all of the desperate situations that we might imagine finding ourselves in. He has promised to sustain us only in the ones that he actually brings us into. He, therefore, doesn't promise that we will be able to imagine how we could go through the fire for his sake. But he does promise that if he leads us through the fire, he will give us sufficient grace at that time. Like manna, grace is not something that can be stored up for later use. Each day receives its own supply. We don't have to worry about the battle that we'll be engaged in if we live just so sold out lives to Jesus because God's resurrection power will be sustaining us in it. We don't have to fear that we're going to cave under pressure. God will be with us as he was those three guys in the fire. And you know why, and I'll close with this, the reason that we have the assurance that God, his presence will be with us in the fire is because there's this man, the the God-man, Jesus Christ, who went into the furnace utterly alone. When he was in the fire, he didn't have God there, his presence with him. He was utterly forsaken and abandoned in the fire. And the fire was much hotter than seven times you know, that it got heated up to, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. And God was nowhere to be found. And you, I mean, out of all people, you think God would have been with Jesus, right? He never once bowed down to an idol. Never once tried to build his life on a faulty foundation. Never once fell into syncretism where he was trying to worship God and He was perfectly obedient to God, didn't deserve the fire in any way, shape, or form, and yet God wasn't with him. Let me quote, do again, again. Why, why would Jesus, instead of having God's approval and presence for his faithfulness, choose to be engulfed in God's fiery wrath? This is what he says. On the cross, Jesus was taken into himself the fiery pains that we deserve for our compromise and idolatry. Unlike Daniel's three friends, I am no hero of faith. Every time I bow down to the idols of my heart, I merit for myself God's judgment curse. 
I choose to escape the fiery threat of my idol, but only at the cost of earning the fiery judgment of God for my unfaithfulness. And so the reason why is because of our idolatry, Jesus went into the fire for us utterly alone so that when we go through the fires of life, we could have God's presence with us. Won't you stand for him and reject all other lovers? Won't you suffer for him? Won't you sacrifice for him? Won't you join him on the front lines of the battles, of the battle that wages in people's hearts? Won't you throw yourself in the, into the battle, quit sitting on the sidelines? Won't you get into the furnace for the one who got in a hotter furnace for you? Trust. So we got to choose. We got to count the cost and we've got to trust that we will be victorious, that no fire, no water will completely and utterly overwhelm us. As you probably know, Billy Graham passed away this past week. And I just want to say this uh, I was, I've been reading a whole bunch of articles about him this week. And uh, he said, like, somebody asked him one time how he wanted to be remembered. And his response was, Basically, I don't care how people remember me. All I want is for God to say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's all he cared about. That's what he lived for. Are you living for that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are um, just broken people. And we... We have so many self-inflicted wounds because we make horrible decisions. Lord, I am so thankful for your mercy and grace. That although we have prostituted ourselves out to so many other things that don't even care about us, that don't love us the way you love us and want to know us, um, that you have grace for us, that you're willing to, to take us back, arms wide open, and treat us as we don't deserve. Lord, we're so thankful for that. Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts into hearts that can pray the anything prayer. That you would remove whatever obstacles we have, whatever fear we have. May you, may you help us to see that it is the best possible way to live. And if we don't have the desire for you, at least give us the desire to pray that we'd have the desire. Lord, thank you for Jesus, that he was willing to enter into the furnace with your presence, utterly alone, so that we could go through life's difficulty with you, with your presence, and not be alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.